Well, you heard the news reports at college in Oregon this week. On Thursday, a madman goes in and he, he asks the people, if I understand it right, if they, what they believe, if they're Christians, and he begins to shoot in, in the head the people that would not deny their faith in Jesus Christ. And the question, of course, would come to your mind, what would you have said? What would you have said? I wonder how many of you would have said, I'm a Christian. How many of you would have said, I'm a Christian? How many of you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? How many of you believe that Jesus Christ is God? How many of you believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? How many of you believe that Jesus Christ's death is the only way of salvation? Amen. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ will literally and physically return to the earth someday? Amen. How many of you would leave a church that wasn't devoted to teaching those things? I would too. I'd try to change the church, and if I couldn't, yeah, I would leave. If I, ta- if I didn't teach those things, I would expect you to demand that I would leave. Now let me ask you another question. And this one I want you to answer in your own heart and not out loud. How many of you remember a time in your life when you were closer to the Lord than you are right now? How many of you remember a time in your life when your love for the Lord was greater than it is right now? In the letters that Jesus gave to the churches... The first letter is the letter to the church in Ephesus, and here's how it reads. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You can follow along in your Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It's a letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus, recorded in the Bible for our consideration today. Here's the letter from Jesus to the church. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Jesus says to the church, I know The one who walks among the lampstands, among the churches, who holds the messengers of the churches in his right hand, says, I know these good things about you. Verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly. And remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So here you have the letter to a church that we know something about, because 
There's an epistle in the Bible written to the church in Ephesus because there is a historic record in the Bible in Acts chapter 19 about how the church in Ephesus began. There were key players in the beginning in the church of Ephesus, this great crossroads town in that culture. There were, there were Priscilla and Aquila and the, and the mighty man who was eloquent in the scriptures, Apollos. And along came the Apostle Paul, and he taught in the school of Tyrannus for a long period of time. He was followed there by Timothy, and then by the Apostle John himself. This was a church with a spiritual pedigree. It was a church, the church in Ephesus, that was a church with a spiritual heritage. They had really good teachers and leaders, and they had a really great heritage and sound doctrine and all of that. They were also surrounded by spiritual darkness. So you have a church that has within all this going for it, but yet it's embedded in a place of great spiritual darkness. And you can tell that by reading about the spiritual warfare that's implied and spoken of in in the epistle to the Ephesian church. But you can also see it real clearly in all the crazy stuff that happened that's recorded in Acts chapter 19. There's the temple to Artemis. There was also, and it still exists today, the temple to Domitian side of a football field, a temple to Domitian. Domitian was so hated that when he died, they renamed it to Vespasian, his father. But but it was a temple to Domitian. And this was the atmosphere. And this church had this robust spiritual heritage that they were embedded in a, a place of great spiritual darkness. It really is not unlike our church today. There's a meeting recorded in Acts chapter 20. It's a tender scene where Paul meets the elders from the church in Ephesus at Miletus. And he he gives them a greeting and he gives them a warning. And and the warning that he gives them comes to pass. uh, Each church has a letter. Each of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 has a letter written to it. And they all have about five similarities. Each of these letters begins with a description of Christ. Of course, remember last week when we went chapter 1, 9 through, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, it was just a rich description of Christ. And the text before that was also a description of Christ. This is not uh, accidental. The foundation of all this is this is who Jesus is. Get this in your mind. Now he's walking among the churches and he has something to say. He takes a keen interest in the churches and he's going to speak and let those who have ears to hear. Every letter says toward the end. And so you have a description of Christ. The second part of every letter is a commendation about what they did right, if there's something good to say. And then the third part, about a, 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 in a way, a condemnation about what they did wrong. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus says about what they've done right. Here's what Jesus says about what they have done wrong. And then the fourth thing, or the third thing, would be the correction. Of the fourth thing would be a correction is given in each case. What does what Jesus want them to do about that which they've done wrong or continue to do about that which they've done right. And then, at, at, and then in the end of each of these descriptions to each of these seven churches, there is a promise to those who, and the, the word is what? Do you know the word? Promise to those who what? Anybody know? Endure is one, is one translation of it. Overcome is another translation of it. And the word there, that overcome word, is like to whoever's victorious, whoever's faithful, and the word in the Greek is the word from which we get the Nike word. It's the victory word. It's the, it's the military or maybe the athletic victory. So over and over again, this book is talking about the victory of Jesus in the world. And the people that are going to be on his side, when he gains his victory, 
And he keeps saying to them, if you have ears to hear, then you will be on the winning side. You will be victorious. And there are always promises that are given to those who are going to be victorious in that. So that's the way all these letters are. The letters are very rich, and God has preserved these letters for our consideration. But in order for, them to, for us to understand them well, let's just look at the church in Ephesus and notice these five things. Number one, there's a description of Jesus. Look at that description. These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. These symbols are very clear what they are because they're defined in chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20 says that the stars are messengers of the churches. So you've got to think this logically. What happened is God gives the message to uh, Jesus. Jesus earns the message. This is his inheritance, the scroll. It gives it to an angel. The angel gives it to John. John gives it to messengers. They're either pastors or official delegates that take the message, and they actually hike to the church, and they actually read this letter from Jesus to the church. Whenever you read a Bible verse, you should stop. You should emotionally enter into the, a Bible passage. Try to emotionally imagine your way into that Here's the church. Here's the letter from the ancient apostle from Patmos, who used to be our pastor, who now has heard from Jesus, and he has a word from us from Jesus. He's had a miraculous vision, and now here's the word. They're going to be listening to that. This description is, who is this? He's the one who holds the seven stars. The seven stars are the messengers, and, the, and he walks among the candlestands. The seven the candlestands are the churches. Churches are symbolized by that because what church is supposed to do is shine a light. Our light so shine before men that men see our good works and they glorify our Father in heaven. Our, our charter, our reason for being is to make Jesus known to as many people as we can make him known to. Show what Jesus is like in our life. Talk about who Jesus is with our lips. Live for Christ. Love him. Shine a light. Make him known. That makes it legitimate for us to call ourselves a church. And he's the one who allows us to do that. So that it really helps when you go through this letter to look at the verbs, especially the ones that are verbs about what Jesus is doing, because they're really powerful. He holds, he walks. He has in his care and accountable to him the leaders of every church. Pastors and deacons hear it well. This is serious business to be a leader in the church. Because he holds the leaders in his right hand. Serious business. And he walks among the candlesticks. He, he is among the churches and he's evaluated. He has every right to evaluate the churches. He has something to say. He walks and he holds. Number two, what did they do right? In verses two and three and actually verse six, he kind of echoes it again. Basically what he's saying is a lot like most GARBC churches like ours. GARBC, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches of Grand Army of Rebellious Baptists, sometimes called GARBC Fellowship Churches like ours. We were born out of a liberalism controversy, a theological liberalism controversy, and we said in our DNA, like we are fundamental to the truths of the Scripture. 
That is who we are and who we're going to be. And we have fought a hard fight to get there. Not our generation, but a generation before us. And they suffered. These people started churches like in, in, in post offices and in basements of post offices and in little tar paper roof shacks. And they were the little sectarian group in town. They weren't the big uptown church, the, the first church, because they left the first church because the first church left the doctrines of the Bible. And they said, we're going to do right even if we have nothing. And they built these churches. And so this is a good thing. This is, you're in a church that is in a heritage of doctrinal fidelity. And I filled out a, I filled out a, a, a form 21 pages long. Tracy, this is 21 pages long. I filled out a form like that for you guys. And asking me every imaginable detail of Christian doctrine to see to it that not only what I put on that paper, but what I practiced and taught in my life is true to that. And I will tell you, I'm loved here, but the moment that I departed from any of those doctrines, there would be scores of people that would immediately call me on that because this church is devoted to sound doctrine. It's one of the reasons why you want to be in a church like this. And that's a good thing. And God commends us for being a church that's sound in doctrine, especially in an age of apostasy, departing from doctrine. He knows this. Look at that. I know your works. You're not going to do something good. And Jesus doesn't make a note of it. He knows. So he says, I know your works. Notice it's like almost nine things. He says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know that you can't bear those that are evil. It's a good thing. I know you have tested those who say they're apostles and they're not. And you've found them liars. Verse 3, and you have persevered. I know you've persevered. And I know you have patience. And, and I know you've labored for my namesake and have not become weary. You worked hard. These are all good things. So this is what he's saying. I'm commending you that you were hardworking, that you were discerning, that you recognized false apostles, you rejected false doctrine, you are sound in faith. This church was probably almost as good as the GARBC church. But then you get to verse 4, and you have what they did wrong. This frightening word, nevertheless. It's almost as if this is the main point, which I think it is. Nevertheless, he's going to say something shocking. I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember the questions I asked at the beginning? Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe the virgin birth? Like that? But then that question, that harder question, were you ever closer to the Lord than you are right now? Say, have you, have you left your first love? That's, that's what he's saying to the church here. And then he says, I have this against you. problem was internal. They have the spiritual heritage. They have the spiritual darkness around them. But the real problem was not the darkness around them, although that may have contributed to the problem. It was their own hearts drifting away from this passion for Jesus Christ. Their own hearts getting kind of cold and they're going through the motions and they're just doing stuff. That, that was what Jesus saw when he walked among the churches in Ephesus. What's the correction? He says, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and he calls it fallen. Doesn't it just seem harsh? Remember from where you have fallen. He says, remember that, and then repent and do the first works. It's almost like three things. Remember, repent, do the first works, or else, he says, 
I will come to you quickly, suddenly, and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And he says that almost like that's the worst thing that could ever happen to a church. If you don't listen to what I'm saying, repent, remember, and repent, and return. I'm going to put out your light as a church. You're not going to be a real church anymore. You're not really going to represent me anymore. Nobody's going to see the light of Jesus in you anymore. This should just make your blood run cold. Oh, God, don't ever let me be a part of a church that God has removed its light because it's lost his love for you. This is what happened there. Remember, repent, return, or repeat, or else you lose your light. And then the fifth thing, there's a promise for those who overcome. It's in verse 7. Oh, by the way, there's a, re- there's, a, there's a kind of an echo, a repeat. Verse 6, he talks about the Nicolaitans. What's really interesting is I studied this this week. A, a, a really cool thing happened. This is completely irrelevant to the message, but I'm telling you anyway because I knew you wanted to know this. I'm uh, 17 years old. I'm pastoring a little church in the country. No, it's not a joke. It's real. There's real people there. They're nice people, and I'm 17. I don't, I don't know anything. I didn't even know what I don't know, but, but I just was enthusiastic, and I was an exhorter, and, and they didn't have anybody else. I'm the best they could get, I guess. Or the, or the, I, I didn't move fast enough. I was their pastor for one year from August 11th, 1977 to August of 1976 to August of 1977. Pleasant Ridge Bible Church, Fort Recovery, Ohio. There's a cluster of like 30 or 40 people there. Most of them are young people. So I decide I'm going to preach through Revelation like you do because I'm 17 and I can do that. <laughs> Isn't that amazing ignorance and chutzpah to, to, to preach through Revelation at 17? And I'll just tell you what I did. Honest, I kind of cribbed from a book and just kind of repeated the stuff and, and I just exhorted and we made our way through that and I leaned heavily on Tim LaHaye, I think. So I'm reading a, a commentary by Tim LaHaye and I'm thinking, what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Because you want to know that. God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and he likes it that the church hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so I was wondering, so what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Because if that ever happens again, I want to hate on them, like on what they teach, like you hate on what they teach, or what they do, the deeds. And what's funny is this week as I'm studying that, my mind went back, that was a long time ago, my mind went back and I immediately remembered what I read. I said, it's so funny what goes on the hard drive of your brain. Um, maybe my little uh, therefore you should would be this. Study the Word, and it will be amazing what God puts in your mind and stays there for years. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, scholars aren't really sure. The, the, the best of them probably conjecture that this is when there's a hierarchy in the church and the common person loses his, his, his place, like God intended for the church to be, a, a, you know, the ground is level around the cross and there's not a series of hierarchy over the church. But they're not really sure. But here's what it is. They, the, the way they behave was not pleasing the Lord. And God doesn't say, I hate the Nicolaitans. He says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and I like that about you. So we learn from that, that when somebody's in doctrinal error, we should not hate them, but we should hate their deeds like God hates their deeds. Isn't that good? And this is what Ephesus did. So they got that down. They were doctrinally sound. They tested false apostles. They labored and they worked really hard. They had this great heritage, but it was shocking. It was scandalous. It was frightening. It was sobering that they had left their first love. You just imagine your wife telling you, I just don't feel like I love you at all anymore. I'm still going to wash the dishes like I always do. And I'm still going to take care of things. 
but I just don't love you anymore. I don't really like being around you anymore. I don't really have any love for you anymore. Would that be okay with you? No, that would not be okay. But who deserves our love even more? But our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for us, sent His Holy Spirit to live within us. How can we fall out of love with Him? And how can our hearts grow cold? And what a scandal it is if that happens to us. And that's what happened to them. And so then there He says in verse 7, let He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever overcomes, to him who overcomes, victory, Nike, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there's an old janitor, and he's working at a college. He doesn't pretend to be all that smart. He's a custodian. And he's sitting there one day, and he has an old worn Bible, and the professor walks by, tweed jacket, pipe in his teeth. And he kind of looks at him and says, Say there, fellow, what are you reading? And the old man just humbly looks up, and he says, I'm reading my Bible today. And the professor says, and what part of the Bible are you reading? I'm familiar with that. He goes, I'm reading the Revelation. He goes, oh, you're reading the Revelation? He goes, have you ever had any training on how to understand that? He goes, no, sir, I have not. He said, do you know the original languages of the Bible? You ever studied the Greek? He said, no, sir, I've never studied the Greek. He said, have you ever had a class on understanding the symbols of Revelation? He said, it's going to be a little difficult for you to understand. Do you feel like you understand it? He goes, yes, sir, I feel like I do understand it. He goes, oh, really? So, can you explain it to me? He says, yes, sir, I think I can. In the end here, Jesus wins, and I'm going to make sure I'm on his side. That really is what Revelation says. Victory is in the hands of this one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks upon the lampstand, and he shares his victory with all those who overcome. Don't ever forget that. In this Christ-denying age in which we live, there is one who's going to come and he's going to declare grand victory over the entire universe. He's going to own and reign the whole thing. And with him reigning are going to be those who overcame by enduring and by believing. And he is going to reward every one of them as every one of these letters to the church's promises. There will be a day when you'll be obviously on the victory side with the one who's the victor over sin and death and the grave. Imagine if you are there in Ephesus and the word comes that the messenger, maybe the pastor, maybe a delegate, he's coming and he has a word and this is a message and the message is from John, from Patmos. This is a vision that God has given to him. Your hands are trembling. The church is now going to assemble. When do they assemble? Is it early in the morning? Is it late at night? Often the early church had to assemble early in the morning or late at night because most Christians were common or slaves. They, they weren't free to worship in the middle of the day. They had to get up early in the morning and go to Christian worship somewhere. Or they had to stay up late in the night like Eutychus falling out of the window, remember? So the people are gathered perhaps in the darkness and now their, their hearts are beating fast. The hands are trembling. The man, whoever it is, stands and he begins to unroll the scroll and he begins to read and he says to them, this is the word from the one who has the seven stars in his hands and he walks in, a, in, the, in the, among the golden lampstands and the, and the people go, we're doctrinally sound. We know who that is. That is our Jesus. Tell me more. He says, I know you're good folks and you believe the Bible. And they're like, yes, we are. I know that you have tested the false apostles and you've rejected them. And they're like, yes, we are. That's us. Look at us. We did this. 
I know that you have worked hard and I know that you have labored. You're hard-working, doctrinally sound, fundamental people. I know that about you. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That's so encouraging to know that God has seen that we have been faithful to the Word of God. And then there's this, this word, nevertheless, that a hush fall over the house when he said, but there's something nevertheless. Like, what? I have something against you. Jesus says that this church has something against you. What would it have been like to be there and have this letter read and say, and what is it that you have against us, God? And then... He says, you don't love me like you did at the beginning. You don't love me like you used to love me. You left your first love, and you've fallen. You've fallen. I'm a pastor, so I kind of know how people respond. Usually they don't all respond the same way. Here's the way it usually happens. In every church, there's a few who have ears to hear. Not always the majority. They're always the first ones to respond. Maybe they're the last ones who need to respond, and they're the first ones who actually do because their hearts are tender. And they immediately go, Jesus, you're right. Holy Spirit, you're right. I have left. I don't love you like I did. I don't love you like I should. And the tears begin to, I'm sure that some people sat there and the tears started to flow down their face when they realized the letter from Jesus to them was that they didn't love him like they used to. And there were some who said, what are you talking about? Look at all that I have done for you. How could you say something like that? They didn't have ears to hear. So what is it if we had a letter to the church in Taylor? And by the way, we do, right? Right? Well, I'm here today. I'm not here to give you a history lesson. I'm here to read to you the word of the living God for the people of God. God in His sovereign grace knew that all of us would be in the house today. And this is the word of the Lord. Have you left your first love? Do you remember a time when you loved Him more than you love Him right now? Do you remember a time when you were eager to read your Bible, when your heart beat fast to sing the Christian hymns, when you loved to be around God's people? You didn't serve Him out of duty. You served Him because you were delighted to serve Him, because you loved Him. You couldn't believe that He forgave you for all the filthy, rotten, dirty, inexcusable sin that was in your life. But now, it's not so much. Lois and I used to know an older pastor. I suppose he's about... Probably a little older than I am right now, he and his wife. We, we noticed that they kind of maintained a public decorum, but we also were perceptive that they didn't get along very well. He would say things about her that weren't that flattering. We went to dinner one time. We were young. We were sitting at a table, and we saw him, we saw him come in and sit down, and, and she was late, and you could tell he was irritated that she was late. I didn't notice it, but Lois did because she was sitting next to her when she came in, and she sat down. The pastor he was he underneath the table, he's smiling up here, but under the table he kind of kicked her purse into her leg. Not in a way to harm her, but just a disrespectful way. Lois and I, on the way home, we said, we don't ever want that to be us. I want my wife to, my wife to go, yeah, you know, he did what he was supposed to do. He paid the bills and he came around, but like, he never really thrilled my heart, never really made me feel loved and cherished. How sad would that be? 
yesterday I, I saw this coming. The day before yesterday, Lois was talking about an appointment at 3 o'clock downtown to Detroit. I'm like, could it have been noon? No, it was 3. My team plays at 3.30. And she was sort of hinting that, okay, they were lame, but they, but they played. And, and, but, but she says, my, she says, my appointment is at 3. I'm like, no, seriously. Can we plan this better, you know? And she's kind of hinting, I don't like to go downtown alone. You could go with me. And then I said, well, I have a previous engagement. It's like pastor talk for, I want to watch the football game. Now you know. And, and the Lord kind of like said, well, this is a test, you know, whether you like her better than football. You don't have to listen to this right now. You can just not listen and... Well, you can turn your little hearing aid on later. And so then I come to the study and I work and it's about one and I'm going to go home and, I'm, and, and, and Lois says to me on the phone, so what did you decide about the appointment? Of course, if I didn't come with shining colors, would I be telling you the story? Of course not. But she says, well, what did you decide? And I said, well, honey, I, I really want to watch a football game, but I'd love to be with you and I'll, I'll be happy to go with you if you want me to, I heard myself saying. And then she says, that's a good answer, but the, can- the appointment canceled. But I was just checking to see. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I get that big of a, if that's that big of a deal now that I made it a sermon illustration, right? But about what a great guy I am. But I do know this. There is one who has this perfect understanding and this perfect knowledge and this great heart and he wants your love and he's allowed you to love him and he knows if you do and if you don't. Nancy DeMoss is a prophetess in our day, I suppose. Can I say that? You get it? Use of the Lord. She wrote a little article. I'll read it. I'll read it to you. 40 evidences that you may have left your first love. (laughs) She's a a gal that can kind of get under your skin. I'll, I'll give you an example. You can go hours or days without having more than a passing thought of the Lord. You, can, you don't have a strong desire to spend time with Him. You don't have a strong hunger for the Word, the Bible. Reading a Bible is kind of a chore, something to mark off your to-do list. Spending time in prayer is more of a burden or a duty than a delight. Your worship is formal, dry, lifeless. You kind of go through the motions. Private prayer and worship are almost non-existent. You're more concerned with your physical health and well-being and comfort than about the well-being and condition of your eternal soul. You crave physical food but you don't have much of an appetite for spiritual food. You crave human companionship more than a relationship with Christ. You spend more time and effort on your physical appearance than cultivating your spiritual inner beauty. Your heart toward Christ is cold and indifferent, not tender like it was, not easily moved by the Word. You don't talk of spiritual things. Christianity is more of a checklist than a relationship. You measure your spirituality or others' spirituality by their performance rather than the condition of their heart. Christianity is defined more by what you do than who you are. Your obedience and service are motivated and fueled by expectations of others or a desire to impress others more than a passion for God. You have more con- you're more concerned about what others think and about pleasing them than what God knows and pleasing Him. Your service for Christ and others is motivated by a sense of duty or obligation. You find yourself becoming resentful over hardships or demands of serving Christ and others. You talk with others about kids, marriage, weather, the news, 
but you struggle to talk about the things of the Lord and spiritual matters, you have a hard time coming up with something fresh to share in a testimony service or when someone says, what's God been doing in your life? You're, you're formal or rigid or uptight about spiritual things rather than joyful and winsome. You don't have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That's half of the list. I can give you that list if you want it. You can find it on the Internet. It's helpful. It, 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 we ought to think. I was in... Maybe our, maybe our love is growing cold because the Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 12, because of lawlessness or because iniquity will abound, the love of many will, will grow cold. In other words, when we live among people who are willfully sinning against God, which we do, it's not uncommon for us, to, for our love for the Lord to flag. I'm in Cracker Barrel the other night with the girls and, and, I, and, and I, I'm listening to the soundtrack and the song we sang today, How Great Thou Art, and the Christocentric part of How Great Thou Art comes on in Cracker Barrel. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. And my heart broke as I thought America has drifted so far from God that when you go to a public place and you hear somebody singing about the cross, it just breaks your heart with sadness. And think what has happened in our country that people have gone so far from God that it's so rare to hear about the cross in public discourse. It's so rare to hear someone speak kindly of the name of Jesus. It ought to break our hearts. And this is, the, this is the cultural atmosphere growing very cold around us. And because of that, our hearts can grow cold with love for Jesus Christ. Can you feel that? Young people, do you love Jesus Christ more than anything in the world? Do you talk about Him more than you talk about anything else? Do you think about Him more than you think about anything else? Do you, are you thrilled with God? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray because you love Him? Is that true about you, young people? Not just young people, but we have a special love for them. I'm thinking about, do you, do you care about what's happening in America? Does it grieve you that religions that have their origin in demons are starting to influence people to perform acts of violence and evil against Christians? You realize what this means. You realize what it means for the world our children and grandchildren will live in if the rapture doesn't happen first. You take seriously the promise that God gave to Israel that we could, that we could certainly apply to some degree to us if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'll, I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive them and I will heal their land and my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to their prayers. I'm in Cracker Barrel listening to a song about the cross. My heart is broken because of our nation and I wonder if I could just, I'm a pastor. There's a few hundred people that I can call to prayer. I can say to these good people who love the Lord, would you pray? Would you cry out to God? Would you turn from your wicked ways? Can we just take a little part of this nation, the part we're responsible for, and be a soft and be a light? Can our church go to prayer and just not just go through the motions of stuff that we were supposed to do and say that we defended our doctrinal statement and get ugly with people who don't agree with us, but can we be people with a living, breathing love for Jesus Christ? A new, can we go back and can we be restored to our first love? And can we pray for our nation that God would do something in our life, in our land? The last verse in Ephesians, Ephesians, the last verse in Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, the first letter to the church in Ephesus, right? Notice what it says. Paul had a hint of this coming. 
he ends the letter. Of course, you know that Paul has this great prayer that they would understand and experience the love of God. That's what we need the most. That letter is embedded in the Ephesian. That prayer is embedded in the Ephesian letter. Then he ends, brethren, the grace. This is Ephesians chapter 6. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. He, this is the end of Ephesians. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Paul's last word to Ephesus was Jesus' word, which is, I think, the word for us today. Jesus said it's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the grand master key to the universe, right? Jesus rebuked Simon the Pharisee because he was a Pharisee and he had all the doctrinal stuff down, but he didn't see that this sinful woman loved Jesus because she'd been forgiven much. And then in James chapter 4, in verses 4 and 5, it talks about the Holy Spirit living in us, yearning jealously for us because He loves us. So do you love Him? And then John 21, John the Apostle records an incident that he saw in the life of Peter when Peter had strayed from the Lord, and the Lord restoring him basically says, tell me you love me three times. Just, that's all that this is about. This isn't your doctrine, really. This is about, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now go and serve me. Once the love is restored and that's established, then you go and you feed my sheep and you tend my flock. So you read the Bible because you love the Lord. You go to church because you love the Lord. You meditate on Scripture. You memorize Scripture because you love the Lord. You train your kids because you love the Lord. You follow Jesus because you love Him. You serve Awana because you love Him. You go to Bible study because you love Him. You ride the bus because you love the Lord. You give a gift in the offering and your, your hands tremble because you don't feel an obligation, a duty, a demand. You know, it's, not, it's not a fear. It's because, you, it's because you love Him and because He's been so good to you and because He's a generous God and you want to be like Him. That's why you do that or you just don't do it. You serve you do public worship. A young, young guy, he wanted some leadership, some discipleship, and, and I, I spent hours with him and, and helped him. And I noticed that he was a zealous guy, a good guy, and he didn't go to church all the time. They kind of would, you know, just like miss church, which a lot of people do. You know, they just, like if they don't have something really better to do, then they go to church, but... A lot of, I guess, if they have other things, they, they seem to miss church a lot, you know. And I, and I uh, very lovingly, and this is a dear guy, and I, he loves the Lord, and, I, and, I, and he's a gorgeous little family, and I said to him, can I just be very honest with you and tell you something? I have no idea how you're ever going to really grow in the Lord if you don't get up every Sunday of the, of the world and you get your family and you go to church. That's a command of the Bible. It's basic. You just, I mean, you don't go because you have to or because God's going to zap you if you don't or because you're trying to keep your wife in line or your kids behaving. You do it because, you're, because God will out you on that. You do it because you love the Lord. I have a dream. Every man in this church, their favorite day of the week is Sunday. They get up in the morning and they're singing and they're happy and, it's a, and the kids go, Dad, must be Sunday because Dad is happy today. 
Must be Sunday because mom is singing while she's putting on her makeup. Must be Sunday because listen to that music that's going on. We sleep in an extra hour, but we're off to Sunday school. It, it must be Sunday. It's the happiest day of the week. How many of you know the devil hates it and he wants to make it the opposite of that and he wants to get you fussing about something on Saturday night or on Sunday because he's real. There's a real devil. But if we keep our heart in love for the Lord, do you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? Was there a time in the past, think about this, when your love for Jesus was greater than now, it is possible to serve, to sacrifice, to suffer, but not really to love the Lord. It's possible we can maintain our separation and lose our adoration. We can labor but not love. We can have purity without passion. We can have our head in the game and our hands engaged in Christian work, but not our heart. Our academics can be right and our actions can be right, but our attitude can be all wrong. It's possible to leave our first love and to lose our light. God, let that never happen at Evangel. How can we keep from losing our light? Very simply, everyone have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and go back. And then here's the three things. Okay, remember, repent, and repeat. Okay, number one, remember, like I do, Lois and I will do this from time to time. I think to myself, you know, I, I, we, I have her. She's mine. She's pretty loyal. I got, we got eight kids. She's probably not going anywhere. But then I remember, wait, wait, wait. It wasn't always that way. There was a time then the jury was out on that. She hadn't, I asked her to marry me every month. She never said yes. I, I figured out later on she was waiting for some hardware, which you're supposed to know that, and the ring. And, and, um, but she didn't say yes or no, and, and other guys were interested in her. And, and I was like, I remember, I remember that. I remember falling asleep talking to her on the phone and waking up in the morning, and the phone is still in my hand. And I talk, hello, hello, and she's like, hello, hello, and we... we we, we slept together before we were married. Um, that one didn't need to be said. Uh, we we talked. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, Pastor, that was, you stepped in it there. Yeah, you're right. Uh, anyway, so, but you're awake, right? That's the good thing. And so we talked on the phone. <laughs> we were on the phone all night. You know, it's real easy now to go, hey, honey, I'm in a meeting. Uh, can I get back with you? And then you're like, oh, did I not get back with you? So maybe it would be a good idea for us to remember. Oh, wait a minute. Remember there was a time when having that girl's attention was a great privilege that you really wanted. Remember there was a time when your hands trembled when you read the Bible. There was a time when you prayed into the night because you were a new Christian and you just couldn't get over that he forgave you. Remember that. When you remember, what else do you do? The Bible says then you repent. That's shocking, isn't it? Acknowledge that as sin that you allowed yourself to drift from the Lord. Acknowledge it as sin that you allowed that you allowed yourself to drift from the Lord, and say, "I repent." Mind, will, and emotions change, and then return. It's not that hard. You go back and you do the things that you once did, but you do them with the heart. I was in a conference one day, and I loved this conference. It was a challenging conference. The men's group, the thousands of men that were there. It got down toward the end of the conference, and a lot of great things had been said, and we were all motivated, but. But it got kind of winding down to the end of the conference, and then we were all going to go home. The very last session of the conference, I remember that I was driving to the last session of the conference, and a dark cloud kind of went over my heart. I remembered last year at the same conference, the holy resolve that I had, the things that I was going to do. 
the disciplines that were going to be in my life, this, this, the resolve that I had. And I remember that I had kind of dropped the ball on a lot of that. Not all of it, but I hadn't really done the things I wanted to do the way I wanted to do them, and it discouraged me. I thought, here I go again now, and I'm going to this same conference, and they're going to say the same thing, and next year I'm going to make the same mistakes. And this guy gets up to speak. His name is Phil. He happens to be bald. He's a great guy. He gets up and he goes, I know what you guys are thinking right now, Phil Bowman, my friend. Because I know what you guys are thinking right now. I think You're thinking, I'm going to go home and I'm all fired up now. But when I get home, I'm going to, I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fall. And the devil is trying to discourage some of you right now. Like he tries to discourage me to just give up. He said the other day, I was thinking that, and I was reading in Numbers, chapter, uh, chapter 6, about the Nazarite vow. Remember the Nazarite, he makes a vow, and then he lets his hair continue to grow, and doesn't cut his hair. And his hair gets long because he never cuts his hair. It's a, it's a part of his Nazarite vow. He said, but then I was reading, and it says, but what if the guy breaks his vow? What if he makes a mistake, and he stumbles, and he falls, and he breaks his vow? And then Phil, the bald guy, he says, he shaves his head, and he starts over again. It's in the Bible. He said, go look at it. God knew you would sometimes fall. God knew that you would sometimes slip. God knew that you would sometimes make a mistake. God knew that sometimes you would let your first love die down to embers. He said, and he made a provision, shave your head and start over again. He said, well, I didn't literally shave my head. I don't have that much hair to work with anyway. But on the way home, I thought, that's the answer I needed. God says I can start over. And I want to tell you too, you can start over. If you'll remember, and if you will repent, and if you will return, and you ask God to give you your first love back, then your greatest days with the Lord can be in the future and not in the past.